when a racist targets you in the workplace, especially one that is in a position of power and influence and can take that, that hate that they have towards you and actually do something about it, it's not enough for them to just hurt you. There's something deep inside them, something fundamentally wrong at their core that really makes them want to decimate you, want to destroy you, want to damage you to such a degree that you cannot recover. Hello, my friends. I'm your host, Victor Rampadrat. Welcome to the show where we share the lived experiences of ordinary people just like you. We're amplifying your voice to provide a different perspective on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Our goal is simple, humanize DEI so we can move closer to a culture of belonging and respect. Welcome to the season finale of Truth According To. Our next guest is the author of the international award-winning book, Hush Money, How One Woman Proves Systemic Racism in her workplace and kept her job. The title grabbed my attention as these things are typically sealed under NDA. I'm excited to learn more about Jackie Abram and her lived experience as a black female in America. Welcome to the show, Jackie. How are you today? I am well. Thank you so much for having me and amplifying my voice. I appreciate you. Thank you. I, I appreciate you taking the time to join us today. And I, I mean, like I said, the title grabbed my attention. I almost want to dive right in there. But before I do, I, I always want to know sort of what it was like growing up for people. And, and for you, you grew up in Colorado. So what was it like for you growing up in Colorado? And, and maybe tell us about sort of the first childhood memory that you can remember of when you experienced racism. Okay. So I can tell you that I, I grew up in Colorado and I grew up in an impoverished environment where, you know, everyone in my neighborhood, you know, really looked like me. And so there really wasn't a whole lot of experience with racism as a child, simply because, you know, we really didn't have that in our community. Our community was uh, full of black and brown people. And so, you know, everyone knew each other, you know, everyone went to everyone's homes. Um, I really didn't start experiencing racism until I started getting in the teen age years uh, when I'm in school. And then from there, it just continued. Wow. So so growing up, you were in a community where you almost felt like you were with your people. Yes, we felt safe. You felt safe. Okay. Yes. And it's funny because I grew up in a, in a very similar community where the people that I were around were, were people from my country and mm -hmm. very similar countries. So a lot of the slang and things that were used were, you know, the vernacular was all yes. very familiar to us. So you yes. get into sort of high school now and, and, and you, I guess you start to realize there's some difference. Absolutely. And, 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 and how does that sort of, you know, look when it, when we're talking about sort of your first memories of, of feeling that racism? So my, my first memories actually started around junior high school. And that's when, um, you know, kids that I went to school with in the junior high that I was at, they started making comments about the texture of my hair. Okay. Um, and then when we would straighten our hair, you know, here's a, here's a funny story. Um, my mom 
would do her best to try and help us blend in because one of the things that I would do is I would go home and tell her, you know, the kids are making fun of my hair, mom. So she would take me into the kitchen and I don't know if you know what a pressing comb is, but she would put a pressing comb on the stove and she would take out a can of Crisco, the shortening, and she would put the shortening in my hair take the pressing comb and then press it to try to make it straighter so that the kids who had the straight hair um, wouldn't make fun of me. So that you could almost blend in with everyone else who had the straight hair versus a kinky or curly type hair. Yes. Versus what you see here. <laughs> Fair, enough. <laughs> Fair enough. And I mean, I'm glad to see that today you are no longer using Crisco and irons to make sure that that's flat. But you know, right. it's about being your authentic self. So you, you started to notice that people saw you as different. Yes, they were curious. Uh, was it more of a curiosity than it was overt racism, or, or, or what do you, what do, you, how do, how do, looking back now at that, mm -hmm. what, what would you say? I would say that it was more overt um, because they were they were being harsh with it. They they weren't being complimentary or curious or curious. They were you know pointing out you know your hair is nappy, uh, your hair you have negroid hair, you know things like that, and and so they weren't being subtle. You know, and, and children can be harsh. Yes, they can. Yes, and I they, mean, they don't so, have a filter. No, and I mean, <laughs> I've seen some stuff where I'm just like, wow, I can't believe that's being said. But you, like you said, children can be really tough on each other. And yes. um, sometimes, unfortunately, there are children who, who feel the brunt of that. And, and social right. media doesn't help anymore because that's making it very easy for people to really be unkind, if you will, to others. So, exactly. so that's kind of your first memory. And then, you know, as you sort of move through school, you get into the workforce now. Yes. How are you starting to see this racism sort of manifest throughout your your your, your working career? Like, what what starts to happen there? Okay, so you know. If you look at a lot of the, the books, the movies, and the, the TV shows that focus on racism, um, most of the times they, they tend to focus on racism from decades ago, you know, during a time when it was more overt and easily spotted, you could point at it and say, you know, yes, that is racism. Um, but when I got into the workforce, I noticed something different. Um, the racism was there, but it wasn't the type of racism that you could easily point at, that you could easily spot. It was not overt. It was covert. You know, it was hidden and it was much, much harder to prove. And so, you know, let me just give you a quick example of what I mean by covert racism, because some people may not know what that actually looks like. So I'll just give you a, a quick example. You know, let's say that you go to work for a company, right? And this is a company that has, uh, I'm just going to throw a, a, a title out from my book. Let's say you go to a college and you're working at this college and the college has hired you to be a director of student finance. But because it's a college system, they have multiple colleges and so they need multiple directors of student finance, right? So if you have a white person that they have hired to be a director of student finance and you provide this white person with the training that is spectacular and that 
really sets them up for success right out of the gate. You know, you give them the stellar training, you give them the right tools, you give them the right resources, and you give them the information that's vital to their career. So this white person is going to be successful in this position because you've set them up to be that way. Does that make sense so far? That does make sense, yes. Now you take that same trainer, Victor, and now he has to train the black person for that same job title, but he withholds information that is vital to that person's career. You withhold resources, you withhold the tools, and you essentially set that person up so that they will make mistakes. They are set up to fail out of the gate. And while they're making the mistakes that you've set them up to make by the way that you trained them, you're documenting those mistakes and then you use those mistakes that you set them up to make to justify terminating their employment at the end of their probation period or demoting them and reducing their salary. Now, if you happen to be the black person who's been set up to fail out of the gate, it's extremely difficult for you to prove that. You have no proof. You just know you followed everything that they told you to do. You followed the information and yet you continue to make mistakes and you were let go. And so that's an example of what covert racism looks like. You know, it's much, much harder to prove. And so what ends up happening to a lot of our, our black and brown people is that, you know, we, we end up losing the job because we were set up to fail and we get terminated or we try to stick it out. But because we are doing a poor job based on how we were trained and how we were set up, you know, the end result is usually the same. It just takes a little bit longer. Now, that's that's really interesting because I've never heard of of it being put like that, but I kind of follow the context. So if I'm understanding correctly, you have one trainer that's responsible to train two individuals. Yes. That trainer decides to provide all the tools, information, knowledge necessary to create a successful onboarding for this one employee yes. and sets them up with the tools for success. Mm-hmm. That same trainer trains the second individual who in this scenario happens to be a black individual. Yes. He then, or she then, or they then, depending on the person's pronouns, I'm a, I don't want to assume, but they provide information to the black colleague now mm-hmm. where they are omitting certain things. They are yes. not providing the same tools and resources. Yes. Why would someone do something like that? Well, that's where racism comes from. You know, typically what will happen is, and and employers have gotten smart, employers who tolerate racism know that, you know, there is a big liability to them if they do things overtly, you know, like let's say you have these two people and you pay the person over here, the white person, a salary that's $20,000 more than the black person over here. They know that if we do this, it's easily provable because all you have to do is look at payroll records. So employers that tolerate racism have found a new way. So racism in the workplace has has morphed into this way for racists in the organization 
who happen to be in positions of power and influence to target you where you hurt, but do it in such a way that you have a very difficult time proving it. Now, this 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 almost seems like it's vindictive in a way, right? Am I understanding that correctly? It, it's absolutely uh, vindictive. You know, I am a proponent of real, authentic diversity, equity, and inclusion training. But, you know, um, somewhere along the lines, people came up with this term, unconscious bias. And, and so what I want to do is I want to tell you a phrase that I heard recently uh, from a colleague of mine and on LinkedIn that just really stuck out in my mind. He said, you know, when racists target you, the ones that want to kill your career in the workplace, like racist police kill us in our community, what they're doing is not unconscious, it's unconscionable. And so when a racist targets you in the workplace, especially one that is in a position of power and influence and can take that, that hate that they have towards you and actually do something about it, it's not enough for them to just hurt you. There's something deep inside them, something fundamentally wrong at their core that really makes them want to decimate you, want to destroy you, want to damage you to such a degree that you cannot recover, if that makes sense. I, I, I felt the emotion there at the end. What was that emotion? Why, why did that bring such feeling to you? Okay, I'll give you a little bit of, of background on me, a little bit of history. Being a writer of an international best-selling book about modern-day racism was not something that was in my career plan, Victor, at all. Writing was the furthest thing from my mind. In fact, I'm not a writer, if you can believe that. I'm a, a, a number cruncher. I, my background is in finance, okay? I had a lucrative career in higher education that I was very, very good at, Victor. And let me just put emphasis on that, okay? I was exceptional at my job. My job in higher education paid me six figures. And that income was important because as a single mother of two girls, Deborah and Delilah, my income was the only income. And the career that I had in finance by any measure should have been a successful career, okay? But it wasn't, Victor. And the reason it wasn't is because Throughout my career, which spanned nearly two decades, so almost 20 years, I kept finding myself becoming the repeated, okay, repeated victim of, of racism in the workplace. And like I was telling you, not the kind that you see reflected in a lot of the, the books, the movies, and the TV shows about overt racism from decades ago that you could point at and you could say, you know, that's 
racism. That That's not what we're up against in the workplace in modern day today. Uh, the racism that I experienced, that my daughters experienced, that so many people that we know and love, they experienced in the workplace today. Victor, it's not, it's not overt, it's covert, it's hidden, and it is, it's so much harder to prove. And so in my case, as I was building my career and I was working in environments that were just horrific. I suffered a lot of racial trauma that to this day, you know, is still very raw and I have not uh, fully recovered from. Because you have to look at it this way, Victor. You're building your career. You're good at it. You're doing everything that you're supposed to be doing. And then someone in the organization who happens to be uh, in a senior position, a position of power and of influence, and they notice you because you're doing a good job and they also notice your skin color. And they decide that because you are black, you do not deserve that position that you hold. And so they target you. But but here's the thing, Victor. When they target you, you know, um, they may be the one that's actually doing the acts of killing your career, but they always have help, okay? I, I liken it, honestly. Let me, let me just paint a picture for you, okay? I liken it honestly to okay. what we saw happen to George Floyd. And if you'll allow me, I'll tell you why I say that, okay? If you remember, we all watched. Yeah, please, because that that's a, that's a, that's a very big correlation. Yes. So so so, follow me with this, okay, Victor? We all watched George Floyd brutally murdered on national and international television, right? So if you remember correctly, yep. he was murdered by a racist uh, police officer, Derek Chauvin, right? Now, Derek Chauvin was the one who actually took George's last breath. He was the one who killed him in his community. But he was not alone, Victor. He had help. There were three other police officers there. There was one police officer who was standing, keeping the people who wanted to help at bay while he's watching Derek kill George. And then there were two other police officers who actually had their hands on George. They had him pinned down in such a way that he was rendered completely powerless and helpless in that situation. Now, the reason I bring this up, Victor, is because of this. Derek Chauvin, of all of the police officers that were there that day, was the most senior leader on that scene. 
He was the person on that scene who had the power and the influence to use his hatred for this black man and actually do something about it because he was the most senior, the most powerful, the most influential there. So when he led, the other three followed and they ultimately killed George. Now, if you take that situation and you move it to the workplace, okay? You are a black person. You are good at your job. You are doing your job exceptionally well. And a white person who happens to be racist and in a senior position of power and influence notices you and they target you. Well, they're the ones that are carrying out the act of killing your career in the workplace like they killed George and his community, but they always have help because of their power and their influence. They get others to conspire with them. And before you know it, you, the person that's being targeted, the black person or the person of color, you find yourself facing three impossible choices, Victor. You're going to try to suffer in silence first, hoping it goes away um, because you can't afford to lose your job. You know, this job is providing for your family. A lot of us actually live paycheck to paycheck. So, you know, this income is important to you. So you try to wait it out. I, I tried to wait it out, okay? But that never works, Victor, that never works. And so as you are being brutalized and humiliated and abused and tormented and tortured, you start to lose your sanity. So in my case, okay, I started suffering something called racial trauma. And racial trauma is something that they don't teach in a lot of the corporate trainings that they do in, in employer settings. But racial trauma is real. And so for me, as my career was being killed, I, I suffered racial trauma, Victor, that was so severe, okay, that I, I considered homicide and suicide. I wanted to kill, I wanted to kill my boss. And I thought about it long and hard. I was so messed up, Victor, by what they were doing to me that if I could have found a way because they were killing my livelihood and making it hard for me to care for my kids, I, I would have done something about it. But I stopped having homicidal ideas and then I started contemplating suicide because, you know, it's hard to think that you cannot thrive in a world that is so unwelcoming to you. And so I suffered trauma. You know, I suffered real emotional, physical, and psychological trauma. And the sad thing is, Victor, a lot of our people find themselves on that ledge 
find themselves fantasizing about killing their bosses or or killing themselves because it's overwhelming what they do to you. Does that make sense? I, I, I'm honestly trying to process it because I, I did not expect the conversation to go there, but I'm almost understanding in some respects because I can only imagine once again, I'm trying to look at this empathetically is that I'm a single mother. I'm responsible for two mouths to feed. I'm responsible for a roof over their head. I'm doing my very best to go in and put my best foot forward every single day. You don't have a 20 year career without putting your best foot forward every day. And you come up against an individual and this individual almost you feel like they have it out for you. Yes. And you are looking for a way because you feel like you're being backed into a corner. Yes. You are feeling the pressure and you're not sure what your options are other than you know that you have two mouths to feed, a roof to put over someone's head. And if this goes away, what are you going to do, if, especially if, if you don't have a, a huge sort of nest egg where you can, can kind of go back to? And it's funny that you're sharing this story because I was watching a documentary on, on the homeless um, situation that's, that's happening in, in, in um, L.A. And some of the folks were talking about they had jobs and they lost their jobs and it was only a matter of a few months before being on the streets. And it's really easy for people to get from what's happening today to sort of when you look towards the future to be like, this could be my reality and I I can't let that happen. So you're sitting there and you're feeling that. Can I ask you, what part of mental health do you think played into those thoughts? Because you don't strike me as someone that would, would have these thoughts. That's why, I, you know, to process that, I was like, wow, okay. So, so what part of, of, of your mental health do you feel played a part into to driving you to some of these very dark places? So let me just tell you, um, the first time it happens to you, you know, you're hurt, you're damaged, but you pick up the pieces and you go on, okay? But, but here's something that a lot of people may not understand, Victor. Racism in the workplace is not a one-time thing for us. So you may work in an organization and you may quit to keep your sanity. They may set you up and fire you and you go over here and you get another job doing the same work that you love. But then you get targeted again because you can't hide who you are. So you lose everything. You, you, you lose everything you know, in my case, there were times where I lost everything and me and my two girls and my cats were living in an extended stay because you lose your job. So you go somewhere else, you pick up the pieces, you try to rebuild, you start getting a little bit of money in savings, you you make a name for yourself in this new organization. Things are great. And then a racist notices you. And the same thing happens again. Before you know it, you your career is uh, derailed and you've lost everything again. You're living off of the money you've had in savings. 
you go into the extended stay and now you're looking for a new job. You find a new place that allows you to still pursue your career. You go there, you start all over, you build a reputation, you build a name for yourself. So in my case, by the fourth and fifth time that this kept happening to me, okay, it's not in one company. This is multiple organizations, okay, multiple people in different organizations who all said, we're diverse. We have anti-discrimination policies. We have a diversity committee. No. And so by the fourth and fifth time of having my career intentionally derailed by racists and losing everything, I snapped. And a lot of people find themselves on that ledge where you can't thrive and you can't survive. And, and even if you do get a job, Victor, you, you don't get the sense of security. I'll give you an example. Um, white people, for example, and you know, not all, but white people, when they get a career and they get a job, you know, they feel security with that job. They they feel comfortable. They, they can project that they're going to be in their same career 5, 10, 15 years, 20 years out, and they can build a retirement. They can actually see themselves doing that. That's not the same for us. We work on pins and needles, on eggshells, hoping and praying that when I'm in this job, that a racist doesn't notice me. And so you constantly have this state of anxiety. For me, you know, I was in a hypervigilant state by the fourth and fifth time of having um, white racists target me and then completely derail and kill my career. And so that's where your mental health stability just really starts to fall. And you, you, you just can't do it anymore. You, you become racially exhausted. Does that make sense? It does. And, you know, it's funny. You, you, you use sort of the walking on pins and needles and, 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 and that whole sort of um, explanation. I have a question for you because, you know, what you're saying here, as I'm hearing you, I'm listening to you and I'm I'm hearing that this is not the first time I've heard these things. Right? So so it tells me that, you know, if you're saying this and and you obviously were able to prove it, which I think is 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 crazy because I, I you know, once again we'll have to talk about that, but it's not the first time I've heard this. But now recently I'm starting to hear this conversation around reverse racism and and white people feeling the same way where they're having to walk on eggshells and they're having to watch what they say in fear of being labeled a racist. How do you feel about that? So so let me just say this, okay? And you know, and I'm going to say this in a very direct way because when you talk to me you're going to get straight talk, no chaser, okay? <laughs> okay. All right, so white people cannot understand racism because they've never experienced it. 
You know, the difference between, you know, you have people all across the world who don't like each other for one reason or another, okay? You know, I may not like you because of your skin color, or I may not like you because you wear this perfume, or, you know, I may not like you because you're gay, or I, you know, there's so many reasons people don't like each other, right? The difference between what we are experiencing as black people and people of color and what white people are experiencing is white people actually have the power to do something with the hate that they feel for us. Does that make sense? Okay. That's the way that I personally feel about it. The, re the reason why I ask is, is once again, I mean, in workplace settings, I'm starting to hear this conversation, but I think I mentioned earlier that I grew up in a neighborhood where everyone was very much like us. And I know, you know, in the high school that I went to, I can't remember exactly how many kids, but there was over a thousand kids. There was probably, I could count on two hands, the amount of white people that were student body, not teachers, but student body. And I know many of them had received a tremendous amount of hate and 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 racism based on the color of their skin i actually spoke to one lady who grew up in the in a similar neighborhood we never met till later in life she's in corporate i'm in corporate and she was beaten severely based on the color of her skin and being white almost as a uh, as bad as people of color were beaten back then and i remember her telling me the story and i have to be honest with you i actually watched some of this stuff happen so i know that it's true so to say that people that are white have not been targeted by the color of their skin, I would say is something that I know to be true, but I just don't know how this conversation is sort of, sort of flushing out because I feel like at least from what I'm observing, and this is my observation is that as the narrative around racism and uh, anti-black racism is starting to happen, there are people in those positions of power and privilege that are utilizing the well white people go through racism as well I and, and and i'm trying to to make sense of it all well and, I, and i'll just tell you you know i'm not an expert in all of this i am simply someone who you know had a career and yep. whose career was repeatedly derailed by racists who were white so when you talk to me you're learning about what i went through and I'll, and I'll tell and I'll tell you this, um, Victor, when racism in the workplace for me started to happen, I was grossly unprepared to deal with it. And the mm. reason I was unprepared is because if you notice, um, they don't teach black history in schools. So as a child growing up, you know, you don't really um, get prepared for the racism that you're going to experience as you as you continue to grow into an adulthood, into adulthood, because they really don't teach you about black history. And so I had no clue what was happening to me. You know, for a while, I, I thought I was crazy. And, you know, sadly, as I started realizing that, you know, this is not only happening to me and you are in fact not crazy, but this is happening to so many people. And when I wrote my book, you know, it's, it's one person's perspective um, from America, 
Okay. And it is a fictionalized book that's inspired by true events. I cannot disclose who the person is that the book was inspired by, but I can tell you that it is a very real person who went through all of these things. And so when we wrote the book, we didn't know what we were going to do with it, honestly, because like I said, our backgrounds are not in writing at all. Um, my background is in finance. Um, but we wrote the book. We got a, uh, somebody to create a cover for us for $22. And then we sold it from the trunk of our car to people in our neighborhood who, you know, were either dealing with racism in the workplace and wanting to know how this woman actually uh, fought the battle, survived it, proved it, and kept her job. But we were also selling it to some of the most amazing white people in the community. You know, people who said, you know, we've never experienced racism as white people, but we, we know it's wrong and we want to help. But because we don't understand it. And, and some of you are telling us, you know, we don't want your help because you don't understand it. You've never been through it. How can we help as white people? So they started buying my book. And guess what happened, Victor? What happened? This book went from being sold in the trunk of my car to being an international best-selling award-winning book in so many countries from New Zealand, Ireland, Italy, France, Germany, Uganda, Egypt, Israel, Canada, the United Kingdom, um, because people there, both black, brown, and white, are saying, you know, we're learning something. White people are able to step into the shoes of this black woman and see and feel racism in the workplace like they've never been able to do it before. Black and brown people feel validated by this story and they actually learn her strategies and how she adopted the motto that E in email stands for evidence and weaponized email and so many other things. You know, so to those white people who, you know, want to help, you know, who, who want to, to take on anti-racist behaviors. This book is great for them. And so many of them are reaching out to me and, and saying, you know, I get it now. I understand. And it's a, it's just a beautiful thing. So you've been able to almost provide a, a lived experience, if you will, very similar to what we're doing with this podcast yes. and, and being able to provide that in such a way that people can read this book understand what it is like for someone to go through the workplace setting, have to deal with sort of this covert racism, as you mentioned, yes. and sort of what are the some of the tactics and techniques that someone can utilize to then prove prove that this this racism exists within the organization's infrastructure, correct? Yes. And, you know, um, I don't know if you're aware of this, but uh, just a couple of days ago, uh, Forbes magazine did a feature story on me and my book and my daughters. And, you know, employers are finding a lot of value in this book. And the reason being, Victor, is because, you know, I, again, I, I know that DEI trainings are important and there's value there. But to be quite frank, DEI trainings failed me in my career. And so 
the reason they, they typically don't really address the issue of racism as effectively as they could is because, you know, they focus on a small snippet of what's really going on in the workplace. And it's usually an annual or a semi-annual training, a mandatory requirement that everybody has to go through and then check the box, promising to, to treat everybody, you know, fairly and not discriminate. Um, and then after they do that, they go back to their routines and then the racism continues. So what employers are doing is they're keeping their DEI trainings, but they're adding my book Hush Money as a component of that training. And they're focusing on this five-year journey where you get to see a woman named Ebony. And, and you know, let me just tell you a little bit about Ebony. Ebony is a young Black woman who is living in poverty. She's struggling financially. She's um, taking care of her sick mother who is dying of cancer. She's a single mom who's trying to get her child back. And she, all she really wants is a, a chance to live the American dream that for her is, is really just a fantasy with no hope of becoming a reality. But then she gets this job at a for-profit college and she has hope in her eyes and in her heart because she's thinking, you know, this is my chance to take us out of poverty. I'm working at this college. I can get a degree and things are going to be great. So she's got all this hope in her, in her heart, but her hope then turns to horror. And for the next five years, she is mercilessly targeted by racists in the organization. And she finds herself stripped of all her dignity, all her confidence, and, and really all of her strength as she tries to hang on to this job and this salary that is so vital to her existence and her, her family's existence. And, um, you know, I, I don't know if you've, uh, if you've read any of the stories in the Bible, but it reminds me, honestly, I liken it to uh, a story of David uh, against a modern day corporate Goliath, because, you know, here's this here's this black woman, you know, earning sixteen dollars an hour. She takes on this this battle against this empire, you know, this this organization who's got, you know, people in, in positions of power and influence and they have deep pockets and, you know, they have resources and tools and attorneys at their disposal. And, and here's Ebony. Ebony doesn't have any of that. She's got her, her mom. Wow. You know, Ebony sounds like a powerhouse. Ebony sounds like someone who wants to make a change in the world. And I think that when we look at sort of the story you're sharing with us here today, you know, we could all learn to have some courage around the things that we believe in and that we're passionate for. And it sounds like Ebony was able to demonstrate that courage and actually come out and as David conquer Goliath. Yes. Yes, she, she was, she was a smart, smart woman. I can, I can see that this is, this is very personal for you. Yes. 
and Ebony seems to be someone that you look up to. I admire Ebony because, you know, the resources she had were far more inferior to those of her employer. But because of the the integrity and, you know, the fact that she she knew that there were other people in the organization who were suffering too. And it wasn't enough for her to just come out of it. She wanted to make things better for the other people who were also being targeted in their respective ways in this organization who were also suffering. So she took on this battle against impossible odds. And with her the love of her mom and with God's help, she was able to, you know, fight this battle, survive it, win it, prove it. And keep her job. And keep her job, something that never happens. Well, like I said, that's what grabbed me because to say that, you know, my own family, you know, we're, we're in Canada um, my dad would be called things like packy and, you know, all kinds of, of really tough things to have to deal with when you're just trying to go to work and put some, some food on the table for your family and make sure you could kind of put a, put a roof over your head. And it wasn't just my dad. It was, it was his sisters, my aunts and my grandmother. And, 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 you know, these were some of the things that they had to deal with. Um, when we first came to Canada as immigrants and, I was young at the time, so I didn't necessarily have to deal with that. But I do remember some of the um, very overt acts of racism as I was growing up. But, you know, in the workforce, you know, I think that there are going to be people. And, and like I said, I find it I, I find it difficult when there are people that are just that vindictive. And it could just be that I have hope in the world that people are not those types of people because – right that's where I grew up. I, I know those types of people. And to think that, you know what, you're just wearing some different clothes and you're, and you're in a different place. It's, it's just hard to swallow. But I mean, there's definitely, there are people who are just not good people. And I think that the challenge becomes is, you know, you get these mix of actors or characters within a workplace and it's hard to understand where people's personal biases are. Like there's one guy that I've known for years was a client of mine back in the day. And, you know, uh, we were having a conversation when I was starting up the company and he was telling me that his his um, I think it was his grandfather. Um, they had a black dog and, and the name of the dog. Was the N word. Wow. Unbelievable. Just wow. And I was like, dude, I've known you for, for quite wow. some time. Like, I, I mean but you start to understand how yes. this is bred. Yes. Because if you think that it's okay to call a dog that. Right. I mean, why would you not be able to use that word in real life? And then what is your opinion of that type of person? If right. you could name your dog that, right? So right. it was just something that took me aback, but in a corporate space, I would never know this. Oh, corporate America is brutal for our people. I mean, just absolutely brutal. And, you know, that's what really sparked 
writing the book because, you know, so many of us, we, we go through these individual battles, right? And if we are fortunate enough, if we are, you know, um, lucky enough to actually prove what we're going through, you may get a settlement, right? But as part of that settlement, you have to separate. They don't want to deal with you anymore. And they make you sign one of those nice little agreements NDAs, that says yep. you can't tell anybody what happened to you, right? Right. So, you know, because of that, um, the ones that are able to successfully prove what happened and get that settlement, they can't really tell anybody how, how to do it. You know, you've got these masses of people thousands, millions of people who are going through this and suffering and experiencing it. But because you've been silenced, you've been hushed, okay? You can't help the masses over here who are still hurting. Well, Ebony being the type of person that she is and knowing that what's happening to so many others is wrong, she wanted to to do something to help them change their circumstances, to to give them something that they could use to, to wage their own wars and win them. And so she decided to write a book and she would unhush the hush, if that makes sense. It does. And you know, it's funny that you talk about the hush and, and, and the little papers because they're very yes. popular nowadays when something doesn't go right. We got to make sure, okay, we're going to, we're, yes. we're, we're not taking any liability. We're not taking ownership, but we're going to, to give you this. And, you know, we're going to sign this paper and we never speak about it again. And we sweep it under the rug. And, right. you know, it, it's really challenging, I think, for a lot of people. And I can tell you, um, and this is just my personal experience because we're sharing sort of lived experience as well, is that mm -hmm. this very same thing happened to me, but it was a black person who did it to me. Oh, wow. Wow. And I was kicked out with no money, um, no communication, um, wow. silenced. And the connection is to a very large tech company in the U.S. Mm. And I tried reaching out wow. to their general counsel for information. And, you know, we've been going back and forth and they just keep putting me off. I've sent emails. No, no answers back. That's and, awful. you know. So I will tell you that it's it's not just black people. Sometimes, oh, oh, absolutely. It, it it it's it's the perpetrator. Like in this situation, the perpetrator was a black person. Well, and and to your point, you know, um, I can tell you, sometimes even in our own black community, you know, it's the black person oppressing us. You know, so you have black on black. So you have white on black, you have black on brown, you know, there's so many different forms. And again, you know, I'm learning, I, I'm in a learning phase right now, Victor, you know, I'm not someone who, who, who planned to, you know, become this big, uh, activist and this, this person who's, who's trying to help the world. Um, but it ended up being that way. And, and so I'm, I'm learning right now, um, my journey Absolutely. and my, my, um, path to knowledge in terms of understanding 
everything there is to know about my own black history and, you know, just everything because there's so much is just beginning. But what I can do, you know, as I'm learning is I can, I can show you because there's so many facets to systemic racism. You know, there's medical racism, there's educational racism, there's so many different facets, right? This humble person here, you know, this woman and her two daughters can take one part of that and show you in a real and authentic way, in a way that you can understand it by stepping into the shoes of Ebony and show you what we experience in the workplace in a, in a real and modern way. Does that make sense? It does. And I think, you know, even in, in, in me sharing my, my sort of experience on the flip side saying that, listen, you know, it's not just black people. I think we have to look at it from a very empathetic view, because once again, your lived experience is your lived experience. My lived experience is my lived experience. They're not going to be the same lived experience. And as we can start to look at this from various different perspectives, because once again, I'm sure, um, and, and I, and I can't say with certainty, but I'm sure that this person who, um, sort of went after Ebony, you know, could have thought maybe in some respects they were doing the right thing, you know, in their own mind, right? And I think that a lot of people will make decisions that are based on what they believe to be right, whether they know that it's vindictive or not. And, you know, they might have this um, sort of uh, personal bias, if you will, um, which then has them take certain actions that end up leading to risk and reputational and financial losses for an organization. So, I mean, it, it really is a very large, very big issue. And I mean, you know, I've noticed even for myself, as you reflect, some things are tied to sort of systemic racism and some things are not. The problem is it's really hard when you're racialized to determine what's what. Right. I right. You. So uh, I think that, you know, as we progress, I think that's what we're trying to do is now to move forward as a strong, united front in terms of how do we make equality for everyone? How do we create better infrastructures so that regardless of your color, creed, skin, religion, abilities, Mm -hmm. you create spaces that are welcoming for all people and provide those same equal trainings and opportunities. Like you mentioned earlier, that one person was getting sort of the, the gold package, if you will. And the other person was sort of getting, you know, just a a half assed effort, if you will, in terms of the, the setup. And if we gave both people the same tools, then it would be like, go make it happen. And let's see who can actually create the best product at the end of the day, who could do their job the best, who could be the most efficient, etc. So, you know, I think that in my opinion, Ebony is amazing because she had the courage and I haven't read the book for full disclosure, but you know, as what you're telling me about Ebony is she took matters into her own hands yes. and she went up against a juggernaut. Yes who most people would be afraid for whether it be fear of loss of money, et cetera, et cetera. She said, I'm going to stand up and do what's right. 
Yes. And she took that stand. And I got to tell you, I'm impressed that someone would take that stand. I don't know who that someone is. It's based on real life events. I don't know who that person is. But to that person, I want to say kudos because that takes a tremendous amount of courage to stand up for what you believe in and for you to prove that systemic racism exists within the corporate spaces of America. So you have two co-authors on this. You mentioned the names earlier. Now I'm putting two and two together because I was going to ask you, you're not the sole author. Who are they? But they're your daughters. Yes. What drove you and your daughters to write this book together collectively? So remember I was telling you about my experiences and how, you know, my career was repeatedly derailed and, you know, how I um, started suffering uh, mental trauma, you know, considering both homicide and suicide. Well, this is what happened. This is how I, I, I snapped out of what I was going through. Um, there is a place in California called Salt Creek Beach. And I was, I was just at my wits ends. I, I was just exhausted. I, I had lost everything again. You know, this is the fourth, fifth time of having my uh, career derailed. And I, I had just decided I was done. And so I was literally standing on the edge of the the ocean at Salt Creek Beach, you know, just kind of staring out at the water, you know, completely mesmerized and, you know, just um, processing in my head how I was going to end it because I, I was done. And as I'm standing there just watching the water and, you know, just wrapping my head around how I'm going to give up, um, my phone rings and, you know, I had my phone in my pocket and I answer it and it's my youngest daughter, Delilah. And she says, you know, I answer and I said, Hey baby. And she starts crying and she says, mom, they're after me. You know, these people on my job are after me. I'm about to lose my job. You know, they're treating me so bad. And she just starts pouring her heart out to me, crying about, you know, the racists at her job that are after her and she's about to lose her job and they've set her up and they're doing these things to her. And so as I'm listening to my daughter crying and, and it's, it's registering, I snapped out of, of being mesmerized. And I told my daughter, I said, don't worry, I'm coming home. So I dropped everything. I packed up and I came back to Colorado and then I helped my daughter deal with her situation. And then after realizing that my youngest daughter was being targeted by racists, I then pulled my oldest daughter, Deborah, in and I said, Deborah, have you experienced anything like this? You know, because they are both older, they have children, they have households, they have families. And I, I said, you know, and I talk to them all the time because I'm close with both my daughters. But, you know, Deborah didn't tell me anything was happening to her. Every time I would talk to her, she'd say, oh, things are fine, mom. So when I'm face to face with her now and you can't hide behind a phone, okay, I just said point blank, 
are you being targeted at your job? And she just starts crying her and pouring her heart out and says, Mom, they're after me. I'm about to lose my job. They put the work on my back so heavy. I'm doing the job of four different people. I feel like my back is going to break. And they said, if I don't do all this work, I'm going to lose my job. And so that's when the light bulb went on. And I was like, okay, maybe I'm not crazy. So then I started contacting other family members and extended family and then friends and people in our community and started finding out that about 90 95% of all the people that I talked to who were black, their stories were the same as mine and my daughter's. They were all going through the exact same thing. And that's when we decided, okay, in all those stories that we are aware of, there is one woman who was going through the same thing. She made a lot of mistakes. She suffered a lot of consequences. She had a lot of racial trauma. She was retaliated against. She was abused, but she started learning and she figured out what to do. And so we decided to tell her story to not only help you know, my children, people we know and love, but everybody, everybody to give them a blueprint, a roadmap, a survival guide. If you look at the reviews on Amazon, you know, this is a book that, like I said, we started selling from the trunk of our car um, five, six months ago. Today, we have 138 reviews on Amazon with a five-star rating. And the theme is pretty clear. Black and brown people see our book as a survival guide on how to survive workplace discrimination and actually prove it and keep your jobs. Yeah, you know what? I have to say, I'm really impressed by the fact that you took the time and effort to, A, go and research this, understand it, put it into a format given an outlet because once again there are people who are very challenged by the situations they're put in and my own personal situation had nothing to do um with with racism between this black individual and myself but at the end of the day it was an integrity discussion and i think when we look at the overall sort of feeling what people are having to deal with when they're going to a place where they're supposed to go and earn a living wage to provide for their family, to have to deal with anything that is not conducive to growth, not open-minded, not taking care of the people, because I feel like companies should have um, some sort of a responsibility yes. to the people within their employee. And the challenge becomes, unfortunately, like I said, each individual has their own personal biases. They have their own personal um, issues that they may or may not be dealing with. And how that reflects in the workplace becomes very challenging. And from what I'm hearing from you and from other folks that I've spoken to is it can be very tough and very yes. difficult. And by providing people with the tools and the resources to become more resilient yes. 
yes. as they deal with these sorts of situations. Because here's the thing. There is no magic wand. You know that once a year DEI training you're talking about? Yes. That is supposed to be the magic wand to right. check the box? Right. People forget about that. Oh, yeah. And, you know, there is something to be said around having real conscious discussions like we are here today. We may not agree on everything, and that's okay. Right. But we can have our opinions heard. We can feel safe by bringing them to the forefront that we don't have to feel like it's a liability to be honest and truthful about our lived experiences. And I think that that in itself shows tremendous courage from both you and your daughters to create this sort of story, to tell this story that shares how people feel and how they can deal with it. Now, I know we're running a little over time, but since this is the season finale, I'm going to take a little bit of latitude here. I have a question for you because you talked about sort of your daughter saying, everything's fine, mom, everything's fine. And then you get in front of her and you, you know, you ask her that point blank question and she really breaks down. If you were to have the talk with your children right now, and I want you to take them back to sort of that little girl who was being made fun of at school and would have the Crisco sort of ironed into her hair. What would you say to them? What would that talk, what would, what would you say to them about living in the skin that they're in? So this is what we're doing with um, our younger generation. So, you know, I'm a grandma, I have four um, grandchildren and it's important to actually teach them their history. So we are taking out books, you know, books that are designed for, you know, to teach black history um, from a child's perspective. And we're actually reading those books to them, helping them understand. And we really just started this phase. So this is all something new that just recently unfolded. Um, but I think that in order for you to be able to live comfortably in your own skin. You have to to understand your history and what makes you so beautiful, you know, because every culture has just amazing stories that they can share about people, you know, in their ancestral line who did amazing things and who were looked at as heroes. That's what we need to hear. And that's what our children need to hear because too often, um, I don't know if this is the same for you, but in the black community, everything that you hear on TV about black people is bad. It's negative. You know, it, it's, you know, um, gang stuff and, you know, thugs and, and, and rioters and this and that. So, you want to start with your children when they're young and show them the beauty of, of who they are and what's beautiful about being black. That's great. And I think, you know, one of the things that I have a young daughter as well is I'm trying to teach her to understand her biases as she starts to develop them. And when she's young, she's not going to have these biases. They, they get learned and developed over time. And I'm trying to just make sure that I'm, you know, doing my best to teach her empathy, compassion, kindness, understanding, um, you know, some of these tools that will allow her to navigate certain things in life. And, you know, 
like I said, I grew up in a rough environment, very challenging, and I can see how that's manifested in many of the things in my life, how it's manifested in how I handle certain situations. You talk about thugs and gangs and, and that type of stuff. I grew up in that environment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, there's a very popular recording artist, um, Waka Flocka. Um, who actually came to my old neighborhood and shot a music video because he wanted to show what the real sort of ghetto of Toronto looked like. And that was my neighborhood. And there's people I went to school with in those videos and, you know, people who I know, you know, wearing ankle bracelets and, you know, that type of stuff. And that's the environment I come from. So I really understand that sort of the track. And I know how hard it is to really get out of that mentality and really push yourself into a different way of thinking and having to anglicize yourself just to fit in and to really, you know, hopefully create some sort of income or career where you can be measured, not based on the color of your skin, but the things you bring to the table. And it's tough. It's tough, you know, to have to deal with some of that burden and not have the privilege of just being able to walk in the door and not be judged or to look like those in power and privilege, but to be the weird guy in the room who's of the different skin tone. Everyone's like, why are you here type thing? Right. Like, um, so I get that. And I, I think that as we move forward as people of color, that we start to recognize our greatness, we start to build our competency and teach our young children something different than what was taught to us. Yes. Um, I think is really important. That's at least what I'm trying to focus on with my daughter, because, you know, if we keep doing what we've always done, we'll keep having what we've always had. That's right. And um, if we can start to change that, we're the ones in power now to provide them the tools and just hoping that other people do the same for their children. And maybe in a couple generations from now, this whole thing becomes a little bit better. Yes. But for right now, it's about the things that we do. Let me ask you a question. This is the one question we ask every single one of our guests. How do you think as a society we can move closer to a culture of belonging and respect? For all people. Right. You know, and that, you know, I don't have the the magic answer, unfortunately, but what I can do is, you know, just give you my, my perspective. And I think it starts with trying to understand you, you can't fix what you don't understand, you know, so in order for us to be a group of people where we can, you know, live together and play together and be together, you know, we have to understand. And and that's what's lacking right now. There's a lack of understanding. I love that answer. Like I'm almost a little bit giddy um, (laughs) just because our mantra is peace through understanding. That's awesome. And I think that you're, spot on in terms of understanding because there's a lot of people who may listen to this recording and say, oh, that black woman, she's just talking a bunch of nonsense and blah, 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 blah. But this is your lived experience. How could they take that from you? Well, and you know, the way that I feel, Victor, you know, um, I get a lot of love that comes my way, but I also get a lot of hate. You know, there are haters that target me too, because of the work that I'm doing right now um, in trying to, you know, shine a light on, on modern day racism in the workplace. So I do get my fair share of hate. And, you know, the, the thing is, I may get hate from, you know, 10 people. But if I can change the heart and mind of 
one person in that group of 10. Um, I'll give you an example. Um, I mentioned the reviews that we have on Amazon. Right. One of the reviews is from a former white supremacist who said she wanted to um, um, just analyze and evaluate her role in white supremacy and get a better understanding of, of racism. So she bought my book and she said she bought it because she was fairly comfortable with her knowledge on uh, what racism uh, experience we're having as black people. And she said, but that was until I read this book and it changed her. And her heart and mind was forever changed. And she wrote this amazing, I mean, just, you know, uh, gut-wrenching review um, as a former white supremacist whose eyes were opened by my book. So if I can change one heart and mind, I may not change all 10, but if I can change one, I feel like I'm moving in the right direction. Well, we're very aligned in that. We are extremely aligned in that. And I think that, you know, what it is about the individual's hearts and minds. And we've realized that we can't change everyone. Not everyone's going to come around like in this. I think it's amazing that this white supremacist was able to look at things objectively and to try to understand. But our viewpoints sometimes are so skewed. Yes. That it's very difficult for us to see things from a different perspective. And, and today we were able to get your perspective and it was a powerful one. So thank you. Where can people find you? Um, so I am most active. If you really want to connect uh, with me, I am most active on LinkedIn. Uh, my name is J-A-C-Q-U-I-E-A-B-R-A-M. If you reach out to me on LinkedIn, uh, you send me a message, you're guaranteed to get an answer. Um, that's going to be the best chance of connecting with me. I'm active also on Facebook, but I get so much stuff coming in. It's just hard to sift through what's real and what's not. So the best place to get a, a, a real um, connection to me is going to be through LinkedIn. Um the best place to buy my book is through Amazon. Um, right now, my book is in three formats. It's a paperback, Kindle, and audiobook. The audiobook is absolutely spectacular and does a really great job of bringing Ebony's story to life for you. Um, so if you support me, I can continue to do the work that I'm doing, which is fighting racism one book at a time. That's amazing. Well, you know, Jackie, I want to say thank you so much for being here, for sharing your story, for sharing how, you know, this book and Ebony have transformed. It sounds like your life and has continued to transform the lives of others through knowledge, through information, through hearing someone else's lived experience and then taking it for what it is for you. And I think that's something that's truly beautiful. So there you have it, folks, the truth, according to Jackie Abram. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. Our show is sponsored by discourse. We build belonging into the DNA of DEI. You can visit us on the web at discourseagency.com or check out our YouTube channel, discourse agency make sure you hit that subscribe button leave a review drop a comment and most importantly share it with a fellow human thank you so much for your support and remember 
Your truth is your experience. Bye for now.